0: listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief because all children leave footprints on our hearts. Good morning and welcome to episode 41 of Footprints on Our Hearts. This week's guest is Julie, mother to Susie and Wallace, who is stillborn at 37 weeks. We talk about Julie's decision to give birth to Wallace via cesarean section and about meeting him after his birth. Julie sadly lost her mother in 2011 and I also asked her how her grief over Wallace's death was affected by this and whether it was similar or different to the grief she felt after her mother's death. We also touch on infertility and in particular Julie's decision to explore adoption rather than IVF as a route to increasing their family. Um, This is quite apt given we've just come to the end of National Fertility Awareness Week. Now, for those of you who love a good statistic, infertility affects one in six couples. And sadly, many couples who experience infertility also experience baby loss. And, you know, I have been lucky enough, fortunate enough to not personally have been affected by infertility. And I'll be honest, at this time last year, my knowledge of uh, infertility and IVF treatment was pretty poor. Um, I have friends who've been through fertility treatment, but I really had no idea of the physical, mental and emotional toll that it can take. And I also wasn't really fully aware that secondary infertility was a thing. And again, like many of those people who, those of you who've probably, who have been affected by infertility, probably get incredibly frustrated by this. And you know, I think for a long time, I was one of those people who didn't realize that secondary infertility, you know, was a thing that, you know, once you'd had a child um, or been pregnant before, then you may struggle to get pregnant again. Um, And being part of the baby loss community has really opened my eyes, not only to baby loss experiences, but also to infertility experiences and the challenges that so many parents face in trying to get pregnant. And for those who then lose their baby, it really must feel like a double blow and a really cruel twist of fate to have spent so long and in some cases, you know, a lot of money as well as the kind of emotional toll, just trying to get pregnant only to then lose your baby. And I'm really grateful to my podcast guests who've shared their experience of infertility and helped educate me and other listeners. So if you want to open your eyes and learn a bit more about their experiences, please do listen to their stories. Um, And I apologise if I haven't included everyone in this, but um, if you listen to Philippa in episode three, Sophie in episode seven, Lucy in episode 14, Will in episode 25, and uh, the discussion that Kat Strawbridge and I have um, on pregnancy, after loss and infertility in episode 35 – um, that should hopefully give you give you more awareness. And of course, um, listen to our episode today. So if you, well, if you're in the UK, you'll know this. If you're not in the UK, you may, you may be aware that we are now from today, um, so I'm recording this on the day before the podcast goes out. So from Thursday, the 5th of November, 2020, if you're listening to this in the future, we are now back, back in lockdown for another month. And it's not quite as strict as the first lockdown. Um, So schools are still open. So kids can still go to schools, and childcare settings. And there are a couple of um, slight slight variations in terms of being able to see people. So one thing I'm very grateful for is that you're allowed to see one person. You're allowed to meet up with one person outdoors um, for exercise or a walk. Um, so rather than being you know unable to see anyone else from outside your household um, one person from a household can meet another person from a different household and I know that doesn't sound like much um, but certainly for me at the moment that that is something that um, is really is really helping my mental health to be able to meet a friend for a walk and you know have a bit of social time and chat to someone in person and you know I've been watching the case where, increase over the past few weeks, particularly um so I'm in West Yorkshire, which is one of the later areas to announce we're going into tier three lockdown. Um but you know our our case rate is one of the highest in the country at the moment. So you know I do appreciate that lockdown is necessary, but I still feel a little bit down about it. And I think probably we all do. Um, you know, we'd hope to take a week off work at the end of the month to go and visit our families, to introduce Rowan to, you know, family members who haven't met him. Um, And I'm not sure now when we will get a chance to do that, which makes me really sad because, you know, babies change and grow up so fast, particularly in the first few months. It makes me really sad that, you know, people close to us haven't been able to um, see those changes and you know, meet him properly um, because over, you know, over the internet or the phone isn't really the same. And, you know, I'm sure I'm not alone in feeling a bit down and blue about this. Um, I'm sure many of you listening are probably feeling the same, a bit fed up. Um, So I would like to send a big virtual hug (laughs) to all of you who need one right now. And I know that really doesn't do You know a massive amount to help and ease things but I am thinking about you all Um, and you know I think we just have to keep taking things day at a time trying to be grateful for what we do have and just looking for those moments of brightness in each day and I also wanted to mention if you're currently pregnant after loss you may be feeling even more anxious with the infection rate increasing in terms of your safety Um, If you're working, hopefully your employer will have done a risk assessment of your safety, which should include risk of COVID-19 infection. If your employer hasn't done this or you don't feel that they've taken sufficient measures to remove the risk of infection or given you alternative working arrangements, then you may want to check out the Pregnant Then Screwed website. And this is, um, if you haven't come across it, it's a, a sort of advocacy website for women's uh, for maternity rights. And they have a template letter that you can adapt to remind your employer of their legal obligations um, to, you know, to look after you while you're pregnant. And I think they also have a support line which you can ring in case you've got any specific questions or want some specific advice. So, The website is pregnantthenscrew.com and I'll include a direct link to that template letter in the show notes. Right, let's get on with the interview. I hope you enjoy my chat with Julie and we'll be back again next week. Today I'm joined on the podcast by Julie, whose son Wallace was stillborn in 2019. Welcome to Footprints on Our Hearts, Julie, and thank you so much for coming on to share your story.
1: Thanks for having me. It's really an honor to be here.
0: Oh no, it's great to have you on. Um I'd like to start by going right back to the beginning because I think you knew fairly early on that you might have some difficulties getting pregnant. Could you talk us through your experience and how that affected your decisions around starting a family?
1: Sure. So, uh when I was 20, I was walking um in a store in the town where I went to college and I was struck by the most excruciating pain and I in my leg and I couldn't move. So I went to the hospital and, uh, found out that I had a large, what's called dermoid cyst on my right ovary, which is a cyst. It's a little bit creepy. It's made up of, um, bone and, uh, teeth and hair. Wow. Yeah. <sighs> it's, How did it's, teeth get there? I have no idea. Uh, yeah. So it's like basically an alien on my ovary. Um, and so I had to have laparoscopic surgery have it removed. And um, during the surgery, they um, were able to salvage the ovary, but they did cauterize the fallopian tube. And so afterwards, they told me that that tube would most likely scar shut. And they also found that I had extensive endometriosis, which was not a surprise because my periods had been highly irregular, extremely heavy, and very long. Mm. um and so at the time they offered me the opportunity to I don't think they do this anymore but this was a while ago um but they offered me the opportunity to like stick something into the tube to open it and I asked about it and they were like well it's very very painful and you know you have your other tube and so I was like "Mm, no thanks so I didn't do it um and so I lived and then and in, in, car- in terms of the endometriosis, they just said get on the birth control pill and don't get off of it until you want to start a family. Um, so in terms of the uh, that whole experience, I just kind of went into my twenties thinking I might adopt. You okay. know, and 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 I don't know why. Maybe it was because at that time, I mean, we're talking about like 2000 um, ish, I guess. I, I didn't really know about IVF. Um, and so I was just kind of like, well, if I can't get pregnant, I'll adopt. Um, so, and then with, on the pill, my endometriosis symptoms did go away. Um, I was lucky in that regard.
0: Mm. So I guess let's fast forward, um, a long time. A few years. <laughs> I'm not going to do the calculations. We don't have to talk about age on this podcast. <laughs> I'm
1: quite <pretty> old. <laughs> You're not that old.
0: <laughs> I'm, 30, I'm 39. <laughs> um, it's, oh, it's horrible, isn't it? Because that isn't old. But then when you start talking about it in terms of having babies oh, yeah. and things, oh, like, yeah. and you get put into that, um, I'm old category. But, um, pregnancy.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway. Um, okay. So you did manage to get pregnant and you had your daughter Susie in 2017. How, how did your pregnancy and birth go with her?
1: So pregnancy was, um, was fine. I, except for, I was grumpy. <laughs> it's quite grumpy. Um, I had digestive issues throughout. Um, and I was, you know, just kind of like what's happening in to my body, but, um, I had no, no technical issues. Um, yeah, I got pregnant in about six months off, got off the pill, got pregnant in about six months. Um, And then everything was going well, but she just didn't want to come out. Um, So I hit my due date and my doctor was like, I really wanted to have a natural birth and I wanted to go into labor naturally. Um, And so it was a hard decision for me to agree to be induced. But my doctor started to explain to me that if I went well past 41 weeks, that there were risks to her. And so I... um, and which, of course, now I'm like, I can't believe I went past 40 weeks. Now that I know as much as I do about stillbirth, um, but at the time I, I was like, oh, I just really want to have a natural birth. Maybe she'll come at 42 weeks, anyway. So I went in to be induced at 41 weeks, and um, but my cervix, I hadn't really dilated much, and I wasn't fully effaced, so they couldn't just hit me with the hard stuff immediately. So they, um, I had to go in at night and they like inserted something vaginally to help soften my cervix. Mm -hmm. And that pushed me into labor that morning, the next morning. Um, but I still wasn't dilating. So I was having, I was going, I was in labor for quite a long, you know, I, I mean, six, seven hours, something like that, but I wasn't dilating. And so they like broke my waters and all that stuff. And, um, the scary part happened when every time I had a contraction, Susie's heart rate would tank. Mm. And when that happens, uh, it's usually a sign of an issue with the cord, like it's wrapped around her neck. So they were trying to reposition me. And I don't remember how long it was, but the doc- my doctor came in and she said, I don't like this and called it. And I had an emergency mm. C-section.
0: And how did you feel about that after sort of, I guess you've gone from wanting this and this is, I mean, this, it's not uncommon for this to happen, I think, you know, but you've gone from kind of wanting this natural birth to having to be induced and then having to have an emergency C-section. I mean, that's kind of quite a traumatic experience in itself.
1: It was. And I, I, uh, I was very, very distraught. Um, and I had a little, I think I had some issues with that for months after, um, I mean, and and my husband's really great. And and one of the things that he said, I remembered was, I was like, I don't understand how this happened. And he was like, well, you know, you know what used to happen, Julie? And I I was like, what? He was like, mommy and baby would die. Mm -hmm. And I was like, fair, (laughs) fair point. Uh, I struggled with it though. I, I thought that people had C-sections because they wanted to, or there was something that presented during the pregnancy that would cause that. I didn't, I was so naive, I didn't realize that a perfectly healthy pregnancy and a healthy person could end up in an emergency C-section.
0: I certainly did a lot of research um, before giving birth to my son. And it, it's actually, it's really common. And, and I know c- certainly like, I think, I think the hospital, it something like a third of births end up being a C-section or something, or a third of inductions. You know, it's actually a really common thing. Um, but yeah, I think, I think definitely when it's your first pregnancy and your first birth and you've kind of got this idea of how things should be, and then it doesn't turn out like that, it can be quite difficult. Um, but Susie came out okay and fast forward a little bit and you, you kind of thought about getting pregnant again. How was your journey to getting pregnant with Wallace and your sort of pregnancy with him?
1: So getting pregnant with Wallace, the whole thing was kind of crazy because, um, so, you know, because of my age, I wanted to try to get pregnant again quickly, but I breastfed Susie for a year, so I didn't menstruate. And so I kept being like, "Oh no, like what am I going to do?" And um it kind of worked out because around her first birthday, it just became time for us to stop nursing. Um, she was doing some chomping and I was like, this is, we're done. (laughs) Um, and it worked out. It was, it was okay for both of us. And so then, uh, the next month I got my period and I was like, okay, Ryan, like, uh, we can start, you know? And we were like, well, okay, it's going to take us at least six months. Three weeks later, I got a positive (laughs) test and I was like, I called my husband at work and I was like, I'm pregnant. And he was like, no, you're not like, no, take another test you know or whatever and so like the next day it was like oh yep yeah, no i'm i'm pregnant i'm still pregnant. <laughs> yeah, still pregnant so that was so wallace presented himself um yeah right away and we were like oh crap i don't know if we're actually ready um uh, but here we are and and you know we were like what a blessing right mm-hmm. we're given our ages and everything like just how lovely um that we didn't have to wait and that here he was um and my pregnancy was um was unremarkable. It was, uh, everything was textbook. Um, I had, uh, you know, because I was over 35, I could do blood work at 11 weeks to find out about chromosomal abnormalities and, and sex. And that was good just cause we, you know, we wanted to be able to prepare if we were going to have a special needs baby. And then, um, so we found out he was a boy And named him Wallace. And then, um, yeah, the only issue I had is that I was still running at like into my late second trimester. There was one day um, when I did get a bunch of Braxton Hicks contractions. And I called the doctor and she was like, well, you should go into labor and delivery and just get him checked out. And so I did. And they just checked my cervix um and everything was fine so it was just they were like yeah stop running maybe Mm -hmm. it's just too much stress because I'd run longer with my first pregnancy um and so yeah so there were no issues
0: Mm. um so yeah so apart from apart from your age kind of possibly putting you in that slightly high-risk category otherwise a kind of low-risk pregnancy when did you find out that something was wrong
1: so I um I had uh so I had three scans in my pregnancy and that's standard for low risk pregnancy in the US. Mm-hmm. I had my first scan at I think it was like 7 weeks and that was the one that confirmed the heartbeat. I had a scan at 19 weeks and change, which was like my 20 week scan for anatomy. And then I was supposed to have my final scan at 36 weeks and my doctor was out of town so it was like a week later, like I was almost 37 weeks. So I had that scan on Wednesday, August 28th, and everything looked good. And part of what they were doing there was to examine my uterine scar to tell me I really wanted to have a VBAC, which is a vaginal birth after cesarean. And so I was working with my doctor to try to plan that. And so she said, well, let's check out your uterine scar. And she said it looked like it was thick enough that I could have a vaginal delivery Mm -hmm. and Wallace was about six pounds, four ounces and everything looked good. Come back next week. And let's, um, you know, let's start planning for the birth. Uh, He was sunny side up, right? Face up. And that doesn't present well for a VBAC, but she was like, you have time for him to turn. Uh, I guess if they're, if they think a a C-section is necessary in the U S they want to do it at 39 weeks they don't want you to go into labor and risk uterine rupture mm. so that was on wednesday so I, I went home and i over the summer so i'm a professor and so over the summer i'm home with my daughter um and so you know thursday and friday were kind of unremarkable thursday my daughter wasn't feeling well and then friday i took her to the zoo um and so then saturday morning i woke up and i just noticed that wallace hadn't moved Um, and we had gone to the farmer's market here in town and I, I was like, gosh, that's weird. And, you know, with my daughter, so my daughter had the whole third trimester of my pregnancy with her. She would sleep in the morning, like when I woke up, like, so she would have a dance party from like one to five. Right. And then I would wake up and she'd be sleeping. So I'd done Mm -hmm. that thing where you drink something cold and lie on your side with her many times, and then she would have she would start moving. Wallace had been the most active baby, like that. I mean, he was definitely way more active than Susie. Um, and so I hadn't been monitoring his movements because I didn't feel like I had to. He was just like always moving. So it was surprising that morning, um, August thirty first. And so when we got home from the farmers market, I told my husband, "I'm gonna um, I'm gonna drink something cold and lie down on my side." And um, he didn't move, so I, um, you know, and I was like pushing around, and I I felt him float a few times, yeah, like,
0: like movement, but not kick, he didn't, yeah. yeah he didn't
1: kick. So I called uh, my doctor's office, and it, they put me through to my doctor. She was on call at the hospital, and she said, "Come down to labor and delivery right away," because it was a Saturday. Um, so. Around this time, it was my daughter's nap time. Um, so my husband was putting her down for a nap. And, and I was like, okay, I'm going to go. Like, And especially since I'd been to labor and delivery, you know, at week 25 and everything was fine. And, like, you know, we were just like, okay, just go get it checked out. But I'll probably be home in two mm. hours. Everything's fine. Um, but, yeah, I went to the hospital and, and they couldn't find a heartbeat. Uh,
0: and how how did you break that news to your husband and then did he come in to join you in the hospital or what happened?
1: Yeah. So, um, so I was like texting him sort of like, when I got there, I wasn't really anxious. Actually. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, like I've done this before. I, I was very cautious. Like the week prior, my fingers had gotten swollen and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, and I'd called Mm -hmm. and then like I'd gone in and they tested my blood pressure. They're like, yeah, you're fine it's August. You're pregnant. You're swollen. You know what I like? Like, and my, all I like, got, my friends were like, my hands are swollen too. So like, I was a little bit like, okay, this is just me being overly cautious. I'm a very cautious person. Um, and so I was texting him and I was like, okay, now I'm in the room. Now I'm in the bed. Okay. They can't find a heartbeat. And um, I actually went back and, and took a picture of the texts, which is like maybe weird, but uh, yeah. And then he just said, I'm coming. Um, and so first, you know, cause first it was like the nurse with just the Doppler and then they brought in within a, within a minute or so, my doctor was in with this, doing an ultrasound and that's when mm-hmm. I could, I could see him with, I could see his outline and I could see that there was no movement where mm-hmm. his chest was. So my husband arrived and he'd like ripped my daughter out of her crib. <laughs> she was, um, I guess about 21 months and so she's screaming and you know he's come in and he's crying and we live a mile from the hospital so the whole thing took just a couple minutes um so yeah so then they showed up and and it was just sort of mass it felt like sort of chaos
0: Mm. and I guess especially having your daughter there with you at the same time and trying to calm her and kind of deal with that complete overload of emotions and shock and everything you're going through in that moment.
1: It was very, yeah, it was really hard. And I, I was very angry, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I've, I've heard many stories on this podcast and elsewhere where people are like, I just started screaming. I don't, you know, the sound, it was, it was such a shocking sound. I wasn't, sc- I mean, I was screaming, but I was like, what the, you know, like yeah. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? I just saw you. You know, yeah. my, it was my doctor. Right? I was just like, I just saw you. And she's just said, these things happen.
0: And I guess they couldn't give you any reason at that time as to why he as to why he died.
1: No, and I I um I asked her and she said, you know, in retrospect, everything she said was very appropriate, but at the time I was like just like I was so angry with her. I mean, you know, it's was like, sorry, you're the punching bag right here, right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I just asked, I was like, how does this happen? And she said, I mean, what she said, what is, very I now know is very true. Sometimes we don't know. And sometimes we don't find out. Mm. And I said, well, can you do an autopsy? You, post, you know, post-mortem. And she said, yes.
0: So, what, and a lot of, you know, my experience and the experience of a lot of my guests on this show are kind of, at this point, you're then kind of faced with this, okay, I have to give birth to this baby and, and typically, you know, you're induced. So I was induced, um, unless you're kind of already in labor or due to go into labor kind of, kind of very soon. Um, and you'd obviously had these discussions already in terms of, you know, you wanted to have, um, a vaginal birth, you kind of discussed all the possibilities, what what were your thoughts at this point around what i guess what you wanted your birth experience to be mm
1: mm-hmm. so i still wanted a vaginal birth but i also knew that i didn't want so we actually we did go home for a few hours but i i knew that i did not want to walk around f- much longer super pregnant with knowing my baby had passed. So I asked my doctor, I was like, what do we do now? And she said, well, now we can induce you because it's not a risk to the baby. Cause the whole thing about the uterine mm-hmm. rupture is that if the baby is pushed out of the the placenta, like out of the uterus into the abdominal cavity, the baby can die uh, if the uterus ruptures. Um, but then, so, so the risk wasn't to the baby, but she was like, but it is a risk to you.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, because surely that, I mean, that does not sound like a good thing for you either.
1: <laughs> no, if, it, if your uterus ruptures, you have to have a hysterectomy. Mm. And I, I remember saying to her, so you're saying we could both be dead by the end of the day. And she said, that's possible.
0: Um, So were they recommending an induction then? No,
1: she was just like, given how much I know, yeah, she was like, given how much I know you want a vaginal birth here, we could induce you. Like the risk to the baby is less. It's the same risk to you. But then she said, I said, well, can you just check my cervix? Because I've been having these Braxton Hicks contractions like for weeks. And she was like, you know, because I said, well, if I'm dilated at all, maybe we could do this, right? Um, And she was like, nope. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> I Completely was, shut up. <laughs> yeah, she,
1: I, and my husband and I had joked about this the first time too. I was like, you know, once I turned 35, it just, cl- it was like, we're done. We're just sealed up. Mm-hmm. We're never going to open. <laughs> like, yeah. So, um, she checked me. I was not, I there was nothing. I wasn't even a face. I was 37 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly my body wasn't ready to go into labor. Mm-hmm. And so we just decided to do a C-section mm-hmm. and I, um, yeah, I mean, I hated the idea, but there was nothing about the situation I liked.
0: Yeah, and there is no ideal option. Let's face it. I mean, right? You know, you're, you're, whichever way you give birth, you're giving birth to a dead baby, and that's not that's not how things should have turned out. No. Um, so I guess you then sort of had had like a few things to sort out quite urgently, particularly in terms of sort of someone looking after Susie and and. So did your husband stay home with her or did he come into hospital with you? And, and sort of what were the timescales for, for kind of getting that C-section sorted?
1: So we have no family here. And um, we had been on the phone with our family. Um, my mother-in-law was getting ready to come out anyway to help with the newborn and, you know, with Wallace and with Susie. And so she was like, OK, I'm going to book a ticket um but she couldn't get one until sunday morning so we just started calling friends susie was screaming we, and i just said let's leave the hospital like let's go home mm-hmm. and part of it was that i'd had something to eat and the the la- when i had that emergency c section i'd been really sick afterwards like vomiting and so i said if we're going to do it let's say today i want to make sure that it's in the like late in the evening so that i am not I don't want to just get so nauseous again. So we just started calling friends and we were fortunate that a friend of ours just said, you know, I can be there in an hour or, or maybe it was a few, I don't remember. So we Mm -hmm. went home and I started gathering some stuff. um, And we just kind of hung out with Susie and, and we had then two cars at the hospital. Um, So we took one car home and I offered to my husband, I was like, no, we don't want to leave a car here. And he was like, I just don't want to be apart from you. Mm. So we got home and our friend came to watch Susie, and we'd actually walked to the hospital to give birth. Mm. Um, and did you, I mean, Susie's so little at the moment. Did you try and explain to her what was happening at all? No. We had been working with her that summer, pointing to my stomach and saying, There's a baby in mommy's belly. And we'd been reading her books. Um, but she at the time she really didn't understand mm-hmm. yet. And then get that day, like, you know, it was like to explain birth and death and then death before birth all in one conversation. You know. Yeah. So um so she I, you know, we probably walked to the hospital at like four thirty that even afternoon and then um you know, the C-section was that night. I stayed in the hospital and then the next morning, like Ryan went to pick his mom up from the airport and then they came to the hospital. Um, so and
0: how how was that sort of birth experience for you? In terms of obviously, you know, it wasn't what you wanted. You'd you'd had an emergency C-section before. So I'm guessing, you know, you, you might have been feeling a bit anxious going into it and have those kind of sort of traumatic memories from when you had Susie going on. And you've also got the fact that, you know, you know, your, your baby is not going to be coming out alive. So there's a a whole huge range of emotions going on there. Do you feel like you, you made the right decision in terms of the C-section and and how, how was it for you?
1: So I think that having had the emergency C-section, Helped me deal with having the C section with Wallace because I just, I mean, it really didn't feel like a choice. I didn't want to risk a hysterectomy. Um, and so I was at, I think I was at peace with that part of it, although it's so hard to be at peace with any of it that it was just another part of this horrible situation. Um, they brought me into the room and I had to be alone in there while they put in the epidural, like Ryan couldn't come in. And that was awful. Mm-hmm. Like I walked in, or I guess I was in a wheelchair or whatever. And I remember just like seeing the blankets laid out for, to, to like put Wallace in mm-hmm. when he was born. And I remembered the same thing for Susie. And I just was like, you know, I mean, it was awful. And I just started crying and, The nurse was really great, but I, I didn't like the waiting. Mm -hmm. Then Ryan came in and I felt a little bit better. The um, anesthesiologist was really kind, although he did that, you know, you can have another thing, which is like, okay, you know, let me, let's get this dead one out of me. That's not what I
0: want to hear right now. (laughs) No,
1: but um, he, he was really nice. And he kept asking me, he was like, if you're feeling anxious, there's something I can give you for that but it will make you less aware. And I said, no, I don't want that. I want to be aware. Um, but the surgery itself was very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I don't remember it being so uncomfortable the first time. And so uh, probably about 10 minutes into it, I did ask for that. Um, which didn't make me less aware. (laughs) So I'm I'm not actually sure what it did. That's okay. Um, and, like, during the surgery, my doctor was talking about skiing with some of the other – I was just, like, you know, you hear those stories, but it's just, like uh, – it was it was awful. And I, um, I was very scared. They asked us before, did we want to see him? And I was, like, I mean, I don't know. Like, what do people do in this situation? I have no idea. And they said, well, I was, like, can we? And she said, yes. And I was, like, do you think he's going to be disfigured? And she said, "You know, she said no. Like I, I'm gonna guess that he hasn't. He's only been dead for like 12 to 24 hours." Um. So he said, "Okay, we want to see him." Um. And then it was actually during the surgery that they discovered why he had died.
0: And what what was that reason?
1: So um. The the order of operations here is a little fuzzy to me, but basically at some point. I don't remember if we'd already seen Wallace by this point. They um they came and showed me um my umbilical cord and it had a huge knot tied around it. And the knot was this it was stringy and what she told me is that there's a certain condition called amniotic band syndrome where the amniotic sac like for lack of a better word like flakes off and it mm. It becomes a, like a spider web in the womb and it entangles the baby. And usually, um, babies born with amniotic band syndrome have like a finger missing because there's a knot or like a cleft lip. Um, but in Wallace's case, the knot was like a millimeter um, from his belly button. Mm. So um, there was no way they could have seen it. So
0: it wasn't something that could have been picked up on scans or or like there was there was nothing that they no way they could have known.
1: That's something that I've struggled with, because as I've read about, I did a lot of reading about it after. And, and not only do they sometimes detect it, they can't they've even done operations in the womb to repair it. Um, and so that's where that 17 weeks that I had no scan, you know, hurt, I think. But. Even, even, I mean, I think that, so what's hard, amniotic band syndrome is very rare. Having a baby die from it is even, it's, I mean, gosh, like one in a million or something. I mean, it's like, mm. although, you know, I this woman found me in the UK that had it a week before and we've become really close, Um, but like. So I think that there's just, it's one of those rare things, like, I don't know that they really know, but yes, it, 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 there was a possibility that if I'd been receiving a lot of scans, they might have been able to see it and they might have been able to do something. I'm mean, going to guess those chances are really, really small. Mm-hmm. And, in the, and they had no reason. It, it's, it's funny to me because I'm thinking, well, I'm over 35. Aren't I already just a high risk pregnancy? But I, I wasn't considered high risk. I feel like it they've kind of pushed the
0: boundaries up a bit now because I know um I think years ago like maybe a decade ago or something it was over 35 and I think in the UK now it's over 40 mm-hmm. perhaps in your cluster's high risk in terms of age Brilliant. um yeah so and how how did you feel when when you did see him and did they sort of give him to you to hold
1: so I did, I, you know, um, in the recovery room, I only saw him like where he was lying down. And some of that yeah. was like, just making sure that I was okay. I think like, um, and I appreciated that. Cause <laughs> we have a picture of when they first gave like Susie, a, you know, they put Susie on me as soon as they could, but I'm like white as a sheet, you know? And like, I mean, I'm, I was so glad to hold her, but I was, in this case, I was glad they gave me a minute to like you know just kind of rebound from the all the drugs in my body um and so I saw him but from afar and then they said you know would you like us to bring him to your room and we said yes so they kind of they took me back to the room and like kind of got me settled um and then that's when they brought him in and then they left us with him
0: and were you able to spend a bit of time in hospital with them? I think with him, I think you said that your mother-in-law and Susie came in
1: the next morning. The next day we, so we, so I have foggy memories of this. For example, I don't remember being offered photography, um, but Ryan does. And so he says that we turned it down, but I like, I have no memory of that. Um, mm-hmm. But like there was no colcott. We weren't offered that at least. And, and again, my memory might be serving me poorly, but we... So we probably spent an hour, an hour and a half with him that night. Um, and it was terrifying to me. Like, I I couldn't get out of bed at that point. Um, and so Ryan put him in my arms. Um, he was six pounds, seven ounces. He was actually longer than Susie was. But he felt so fragile like i was really scared i was going to like break him and i i couldn't move so i i didn't feel you know i mean i think i just i just held him and cried mm-hmm. and then ryan held him and cried and then we put him back in the bassinet and cried and then at a certain point we like needed a break and we asked him to come to come get him and I think and
0: I mean I think this is something that I kind of struggled with I think at the time and kind of looking back it's almost like well what you know because they're not responding to you you know it's not like right. they're not crying they're not kind of suckling in terms of wanting a feed it's almost like what you know what do you do with them? <laughs> um and yeah and it is you're just in this whole situation which you're completely unprepared for and you just don't know what to do no
1: yeah i mean of course there's like a million things i wish i'd done you know i wish i'd looked at his knees and his elbows Mm -hmm. right like i and like no one else saw him my mother-in-law didn't see him we didn't ask the next so we in the u.s there's this organization called compassionate friends and it's for families who've lost a baby of any age and so they they had a big butterfly on my door on my hospital door and that was to help everyone know that I'd had a loss and I started walking pretty quickly like the next day like they had me stand up that night and I immediately was like I'm gonna I'm gonna vomit I need to lie down but so the next day I was walking down the hall and I saw a butterfly on another door like not not a suite door like a closet door and I was like I wonder if Wallace is in there, which is very strange. And like that night I like opened the door thinking I might see him again, but he wasn't in there. And it was a, the whole thing was like very surreal and dreamlike. Like, Like, I don't know why I thought that they might just have a dead baby lying, (laughs) lying in a closet. I, you know, it was just very, very surreal. But I, I remember thinking like, that's where he is. And maybe I can go see him again. Oh, Oh, he's not there. I mean, it was very, it's very odd uh feeling
0: so did you see him before you left the hospital or did you go home after that no
1: yeah no we went um i wanted to get out of the hospital as quickly as possible and so they let me go maybe before they should have because when i got home it was less than 2 days uh the pain hit me like i mean just like a truck and um but fortunately i i had some painkillers but um the Uh, So I thought that was it. And then a few days later, the funeral home called and we had to go to make arrangements and uh, we got to see him there. So that was probably five days later. So that was very special.
0: Uh, Yeah. And I guess, yeah, you were a bit more kind of prepared for it then in terms of, you know, you haven't just been through major surgery and you're not tanked up in a load of drugs and um, yeah. and, And with the kind of that immediate shock as well. Um, what what was your experience of grief and how has that evolved over the past year from those kind of early weeks to now we're kind of just over a year on?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, those first few weeks were the worst of my life, for sure. Uh, milk. <laughs> Let's talk about milk. Like, holy cow. That was so physically and emotionally painful, um, because I had nursed Susie up until I got pregnant, I was actually leaking milk my whole pregnancy, mm. and so then of course it hit, and I I almost got mastitis. I had to go to the doctor. So I was just, I, I mean, yeah, I think it's what what everyone has talked about. Like it's your body doesn't know your baby has died, you know? So, right, so like you're you're there, and you're everything. I mean, I still had a belly. I still You know, I was producing a ton of milk, which I was trying to, I mean, I tried pumping to ease some of the discomfort, but then, you know, a lactation consultant told me that that would make it worse. It would just call my body to produce more. I didn't want to donate it. I didn't want to keep reminding myself of what I didn't have. Um, And so all that physical pain, the pain from this recovery, the the looking pregnant the milk it was just brutal and then um you know I couldn't lift up Susie for six weeks because um, she was about 20 pounds that was hard um and yeah I mean I felt like I was in a in a movie a tragic movie about someone else you know and I just wanted it to end and um so I think I think one of the challenges was that – so initially, um, being pregnant had been very hard. Um, When I was pregnant with Wallace – so my daughter was quite young. She's never been a good sleeper. She got up at four this morning, for example. But um, at the time, she – like right when I got pregnant with him, she started having chronic ear infections. She had eight in a row. And so like in May, she'd had to have tubes put in her ears and it's it just like with work and everything, it has just been so exhausting that I was like, I can't do this again. You know, and I remember in the hospital, I just kept saying like, I can't, I can't do this again. And so in the first couple weeks after he died, I was like, that's it. But then I, I, I saw my doctor, found out a little bit more about amniotic band syndrome and realized that. I could maybe get pregnant again. And even though it seemed just daunting. So I started to tell myself I'll have another baby and that will, be, that will help, which is of course, as I know now, really maybe common, but also not quite right. Like not quite accurate response. Um, and so That was something I told myself a lot. And that has been one of the hardest things because I have not gotten pregnant again. And so I wish I could go back and and tell myself to just face the loss more head on rather than thinking, well, I'll get pregnant again. Um, But I think at the time I couldn't face the pain.
0: Mm. And do you think The fact that that because you were kind of focused on having another baby and then kind of the sort of, I guess, a sense of loss in terms of not being able to get pregnant again, do you think that kind of almost drew that grief out or that kind of the really hard part of that grief those early days? Because obviously it is a roller coaster; Things go up and down anyway. Um, But I guess that must feel like a kind of an extra loss on top of that initial loss that you'd already had.
1: It does feel like an extra loss. And I think that... um for a while I was just depressed, Mm. you know, and I don't know if not thinking about getting pregnant again would have made me less depressed for whatever reason, I guess it was just how I responded to the overwhelming trauma of it all. Um, you know, it's like Wallace was so perfect and, I just think like his absence has left such a big hole in our lives. Um, and I think it was really hard for all of us, you know, my my husband and, and I and our families to really just face that. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and can I ask, so I know sort of from our kind of discussions and from from your Instagram account, Wallace wasn't your first experience of losing someone close to you as your mother died of cancer I think some years back did Wallace's death bring back the grief you felt after her death and how how was your experience of grief kind of similar or or different to the grief you felt after your mother died
1: It's a really it's a really great question I, one thing there was a part of me that was glad my mom never had to see this right? That she never had to know that she lost a grandson. My mom loves kids, or loved kids. See, I even still kind of make those slips. She died in 2011. So it's almost a decade. Um, yeah, I, it's always, it's been very painful to me since she's been gone. Like she never even met my husband. We got, cause we met shortly after she died. You know, she never met Susie who's named after her, Suzanne. Um, and so, yeah, like just immediately, I was I, all I wanted was my mom, and so it was another slap in the face to not have her here. Um, and then of course, you know, I mean, I'm I'm Jew, Jew hyphen ish, right? I was like raised sort of loosely Jewish and not very religious. Um, so like angel baby language doesn't really work for me. But at some point after my mom died, I'd I'd come to a place where I was like, she's up there somewhere, from you know, and um. I'd had moments where I was like, well, maybe she and Wallace are together. At least in my heart, their spirits can be together, even if I don't know what I believe or have a firm understanding of of what happens. And that has provided me with some comfort. You know, Um, the grief is totally different because when, so my mom was like my person, right? We were very, very, very close. So when she died, it was like, you know, it was the pain of, of her in my everyday life being gone. And then also a lifetime of memories lost. I think I was 29 when she died. Um, and with a baby, it's so different because it's all of the um, things that haven't happened. Mm. I mean, of course, I also missed the future with my mom. But like with a baby, that that's kind of what you have, you know, is that... The potential. Um, so it was a very different experience. I also held myself responsible for Wallace's death, as I think many of us do. Those feelings of just, just like, how could this happen? How could my body let me down? How could? That's the place he's supposed to be the safest. Mm. It, and uh, and I had no none of that with my mom you know, like I'd done everything I could to support her through her illness. Um, so yeah, but I, I'd learned a lot. It did help me. Um, when my mom died, I was working on my PhD. I actually took a little break from graduate school and I became trained, certified to teach yoga and I taught yoga for a while and it, it was helpful. It, I was not prepared for the somatic aspects of grief, right? Like, I thought grief was sadness. I didn't know it was losing your appetite. I didn't know it was forgetfulness. I didn't know it was um, rage. All right, you know, I, there were just so many things. And I think that I was more prepared for that with Wallace. But like I said, I, I did get pretty depressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for a while.
0: Um, And I think so you kind of already sort of touched on the fact that you haven't been able to get pregnant and I think you know so many of us when we've lost a baby hold on to that hope that we will have another but you know have a rainbow baby how hard has it been to kind of let go of that hope and perhaps come to terms with the fact that you might not be able to get pregnant again
1: it's been very hard and it's not it's definitely not over yet you know in the sense that like I know that I'm still ovulating every month. I can tell. And so I feel that almost makes it worse. <laughs> like there's a part yeah. of me that was just like, just stop already. Like why torture me? Um, Cause I can, I can tell by all the symptoms and it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's definitely been a huge blow. So after Wallace died, like I said, I saw a few different doctors. I wanted to get different opinions on the amniotic band syndrome. And I wanted to find out about getting pregnant again. I mean, honestly, like, I had I had such li- so little experience with this that I didn't know if like something was wrong with my uterus. Now that a ba- a dead baby had been inside of it, like I really had no idea. And the doctors were like almost looking at me like I was crazy. Like, of course you can have another baby. I'm just like I I don't know. I mean,
0: like, <laughs> yeah, it's not ex- and it's not exactly something you can find out on Google either, is it? You know? <laughs> it's like, it- and you do have all these questions. Like, I think they just assume so much knowledge sometimes. Right. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I was like, and so the doctors are like, yeah. And you know what? You'll get pregnant really easily. Yeah. Because <laughs> so what I've learned is that one of the greatest predictors of if, whether or not someone will get pregnant is if they've been pregnant before. Right. Like that's it. like when I do the research, like, well, if you've been pregnant before you can get pregnant and I'm like, no, apparently it turns out I, I I might not be able to. And so that's been really challenging. And every time I get my period, So I didn't have my period for so long because I didn't menstruate, obviously, when I was pregnant with Susie and then the whole time I was nursing her. So I only had one period between Susie and Wallace. And so now every time I get my period, in addition to like the normal moody and moodiness and and physical things, I just feel like I've been hit by a truck every time. Because I'm like, this doesn't feel like my body. This doesn't feel, you know, it's, it's very, very hard. And I... Um so I think I've mentioned this on my Instagram and I'm comfortable talking about it. We've we've started the process of adopting and I feel really good about that. Um and I know that's not the path for everybody. And I don't know if I like I said at the beginning I when when I found out my tube might not be open when I was young I went straight to adoption in my mind. So maybe because I've lived with that for so long it was an easy transition. The other thing is that my niece is adopted. Um, I'm very close with my brother and he and his husband adopted a little girl in 2018. Um, And so I have firsthand experience with that whole process. And uh, yeah, so I think that um, it's, it doesn't take away some of the trauma of having Wallace Wallace's death be my last experience with, with pregnancy, but I also think it's a great thing. Mm.
0: And I think it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of the time, something that comes up um, or that I've heard people talk about in the infertility community, as, as well as the kind of baby loss, you know, with baby loss, it's like, oh, well, you can go on and have another baby. <laughs> people don't understand. And honestly, before... I became part of this community I didn't realize really that secondary infertility was, you know, was a thing because I just don't think it's really talked about. It's like either you're fertile or you're infertile and it's you know right. it's one or the other and if you've had a child then surely you're you're kind of fertile but then I think you know a lot of people have a kind of experiences kind of sort of hurtful comments uh, about other people having their own views about what you can or should do if you want to kind of grow your family so you know sort of telling people well why don't you try IVF or have you thought about adoption when you're kind of desperately wanting to to get pregnant and you know to be able to carry and naturally conceive and carry your your own baby I think can be really hurtful but I guess in your mind you kind of already had this as a as a kind of, I don't know, is it fair to say it's kind of an, um, an equally, perhaps not an equally good option, but not a kind of a last resort option, like something that you're, you're kind of a a path that you'd be happy to go down and have thought about before.
1: Yeah. And I think actually Ryan and I had talked about adopting again anyway, because Mm. after like, after, like after Wallace, we kept joking about it because I was like, after Wallace, snip snip, like you're gonna get a vasectomy. <laughs> because I was just like, I am so done. And it turned like at the time we were like, We're super fertile and we don't, you know, I just I don't know if I can I mean, we both have demanding jobs and so I thought, well, if yeah, you know, I'll be in my late thirties. By the time Wallace is, you know, a toddler, I'll be maybe forty. So if we want another kid at that point, let's adopt. And, and Ryan was like, yeah, that sounds really good. And so maybe that was part of it. I mean, we haven't, we haven't definitely said we won't do IVF and we, you know, we are exploring our options. We did do one IUI, which is sort of like the step before IVF uh, though, not, not quite as invasive. Um, And I have, I have no problems with IVF. Like I have friends who've done it and I, I fully support um, people who choose that option Scares me because I, my I think that I've developed quite a bit of anxiety around this as part of my grief, and um, I don't. I would need. I think I would need a lot of emotional support to get through it without just like, you know. I mean, I th- I'm sure everyone does. I just I have not, and I I've sought professional help, but I haven't really found good help, and so. I'm doing okay but I I don't know if I can put me and my husband through that. Um and adoption has a lot of challenges uh as well and right now they are seeming like challenges I'm more capable of confronting than than the other ones, I think. Mm. So it's you know it's a, it's unfolding as we speak. We've we've submitted our adoption paperwork and so I have no idea like what the next year or two might bring.
0: And finally, before so before we finish, I just want to circle back and get back to Wallace. How have you chosen to remember him, and how do you involve him in your
1: lives? Yeah, so we we've done a few different things. We. Um, there there's a brick walkway here in town that the compassionate friends has and any family who's lost a child can get a brick with their name on it. So we have one for him there. And, um, we also, my dad got a tree planted for him at the zoo, um, here in town. So there's a little plaque. Um, and so we did have him cremated. And so those are places we can go, um, you know, to commemorate him. Uh, we On his birthday, so we decided we wanted to scatter his ashes in this place that is in the mountains. We go hiking every weekend. And when I was pregnant with him, you know, especially in the third trimester, I wasn't really hiking more than a a little over a mile or so, right? So there was this spot we would always walk to. And so we decided to scatter his ashes there. And so we did it on his birthday, of course, it snowed because it's Montana. It's like August, but <laughs> <laughs> like our, Sus- Susie was screaming the whole time. Um, but um, and we had a really nice. We had all of our family like give us something natural, like a st- like a a rock. Um, my dad sent rose petals from a bush my mom had planted. Like mm-hmm. and we just gathered it all and we scattered it with his ashes. Um, but that spot, like even if when we, we're not going there anytime soon because of the snow. But um, when we can go back there in June, you know, it'll still be Wallace's spot. Um, and we've raised some money for the organization that um, paid for his cremation. And they do a, an annual 5K. And so we're going to continue doing that. Um, so I'd say a lot of different ways uh, that are small. <laughs> um, you know, we talked to Susie about him. Uh, we have his footprints on the wall next to hers and she's going to be three in three weeks. And I think she's starting to maybe understand a little bit and, you know, we'll just keep talking to her about it. And, um, so that it's not one day we have a conversation where it hits her that she has a brother who died, but, um, it's still not quite on her radar, I think.
0: Yeah and I guess as as she kind of gets older her kind of awareness of different things will grow and her kind of understanding of who Wallace is mm-hmm. will will kind of grow and I think you know again from I don't have personal experience but from previous guests I've talked to I think that can kind of evolve quite naturally and at, at some point you know she'll probably start asking those questions about him and well he's my brother but why isn't he here and and those kind of things, yeah.
1: So one of the things um, that there's a so Montana is not a very populated state, and um, we live in, a, in one of the larger cities in it. But I, I still didn't expect this. Uh, but there is a, su- a fantastic support group here for moms like us, and um, the women who run it are amazing. And and their losses are are quite a bit in the past, but they're still very active in this community, and they've been a great resource. Um, because I can talk to them like like hey i don't I don't know how to talk to my you know at the time she was like 21 months like I don't know how to talk to my twenty one month old about a brother that's died and and um that's been really helpful and and the advice that I think I've heard here as well is like yours matter of fact, you don't hide anything um but you don't have to you know go into excruciating detail, so to speak, right so
0: yeah, yeah. No, I think that's that sounds good advice. Well, we are out of time, I'm afraid. But thank you so much for coming onto to the podcast and sharing Wallace's story. Would
1: you like to tell people where they can connect with you online? Um, yeah, on Instagram, I'm remembering Wallace. And um, it's kind of a new account still for me. I've only been doing it for a couple months. But um, yeah, you can follow me there. And I, I, I just say that one of the things I did after Wallace died, I I didn't know anyone else that this had happened to or anything like this. And um, people started telling me, oh, I had a friend. Do you want their number or something? You know, and I spent a lot of time calling people and I want to be that, you know, like if anyone's listening to this and they are new to this community, and they can absolutely reach out to me. I'd be happy to talk, um, whether it's recent or not.
0: Uh, mm, that's fantastic. And I, I totally agree. I think. I think talking to someone else who's been through something, and particular if it's someone who's got you know, a link in terms of their experience and what happened, is, is just so helpful and valuable and just makes you feel less alone. Thank you so much, Julie. It's been brilliant talking
1: right. to you. All right. Thank you so much, Alison.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com.